Welcome to the Business of Business podcast. In this episode, Lewis talks to Phil Walton, Head of Finance for Central, Eastern and Southern Africa at ICCO. Phil made the decision to step away from the corporate world in the USA to make a difference to the lives of the people of Africa. By using his own experience in corporate finance, he is able to help communities create their own future. I hope you enjoy. Just over three years ago, I left for six months. <laughs> and uh, uh, here I am, three and three years and three months on. Yeah. Um, with real, no real plan to return. But uh, yeah, it's been quite a, quite a ride. So have you still got the place in Los Angeles? Yes. Um, that's always our kind of backup plan. We have a, a condo in Huntington Beach and... Uh, that's easy to rent by, yeah. by the ocean. So um, that's pretty nicely covered. It's always been our kind of escape plan as well if uh, things don't quite work out. Yeah. Um, that, and a, that and a sister-in-law in Los Angeles. Okay. Um, and um, But that's kind of cost-neutral, which meant that uh, as long as we had some form of income whilst we were traveling, and suddenly that source of income turned into a career a kind of, in a very gradual process yeah. um, that caught us by surprise. So uh, um, that meant there's no burning urgency to return. <laughs> so, um, and we're just kind of getting getting straight into things. You, obviously from the UK, you moved to LA. Your background was originally in finance, right? And then you switched over to business development sales. Mm-hmm. And that, that was that at the time when you moved to the US? You switch from well, no, that, that's actually halfway through my 25 years in the US. I, in fact, for, for 10 years of my sales background, I used to introduce myself as a, a recovering accountant, right? And I made a great play on the fact that I escaped the finance profession and um, was now in sales, which, of course, in the US is kind of considered a quite a lofty profession rather than in the rest of the world, it's seen as a bit of a <laughs> yeah, I know. A, a dirty job. Yeah. Um, um, but um, yeah, I was kind of always pleased that I, I've moved into a more of a people um, career rather than a numbers career. And of course, um, you never really escape finance. It kind of it has its clutches on you. Um, and it kind of pulled me back. And that's exactly what I'm doing now. I'm back in uh, truly uh, a finance role, though working for my current organization it's has a lot of commercial aspects to it and uh, yeah. general management as well which is perhaps um where i found myself more in general business management than true debits and credits and yeah. grant management which is the slightly drier side yeah but yeah. yeah no um i did i moved into sales and ended up getting back into finance yeah got back in <laughs> So you were, last time I saw you, you were in Huntington Beach. Um, you then moved, as you say, three years ago to Malawi. So the mm-hmm. first question I have is what, what, what made you, you know, what made you go uh, sort of not give it all up, but at least push it to one side and fly halfway around the other side of the world? Presumably you've never been to Malawi before. So, so what was it that, you know, what was the... Um, what was the the reason for the move and and why Malawi at that time? Right, so so I've been thought you might ask that question, so I've been thinking about that. So 
I didn't really know where Malawi was, first of all. It's kind of a, a small country in East Africa. So um, Malawi was kind of a combination of circumstances. But the real push was, uh, in fact, sales in the US. Um, I thought I was uh, a salesperson. Yeah. And, and then as I realized, as I stayed in sales longer, um, sales has become somewhat of a... Of a science in the US you know that people talk about uh, hunters and farmers and what I really didn't like in sales is when you made a new sale um, that the modern convention is to hand that over to uh, the implementation team and basically you built a relationship with a customer and then you cut it off yeah and then um, um, you, you then hand it over and you never talk to that customer again. And I realized what I really enjoyed was the, was the ongoing relationship with customers. And I decided that corporate sales in the US wasn't something I really wanted to do in that kind of hunter farmer model. Yeah. Um, and then at the same time, I thought, well, okay, so what do I want to do? Um, and I really decided to take a, a, a break um, and then, then the idea of traveling came up. Um, and then going overseas, working in Africa, I, I'm, I always describe myself as a, as a devout capitalist. I, I'm a, I really am a, um, a believer in business and economic activity through, through business. Yeah. Um, and that was really at odds with what I considered to be the, um, the, the NGO, the development sector, you know, I feel yeah. that was typically a lot of tree huggers and um, well-intended people, but not business people. Yeah. But I stumbled across uh, a small British uh, NGO that specialised in setting up solar resellers in Malawi. Okay. And they needed to build a sales distribution network um, to help provide solar lights into the rural community in Malawi. Yeah. And the concept was the more sales agents they had, the more children could read at night. Right. And it, it's kind of ticked all my boxes, really. It yeah. It's kind of sales background, a finance background. And uh, I kind of believed in what they did. And that was solar aid. Yeah. And that was kind of the bridge to Malawi. Yeah. And did, did you do that as a volunteer rather than yes. a... Yeah. Um, and exactly, and my wife uh, is a finance uh, analyst as as well, okay. uh, finance background. That particular NGO had two positions: one requiring somebody to help with their credit collections and inventory uh, and kind of sales operations, and they needed a kind of a temporary um, finance officer, which is the role that I took. Yeah, um, that rapidly evolved into a, a kind of a general manager position which of course was uh, something I felt suited to. And I don't think I've ever enjoyed as much anything I've done before. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, uh, I, I suppose le- le- kind of building up to this, what was it like going from Huntington beach, California to Malawi? I mean, I, I, anybody listening to this can imagine the culture shock and the culture difference, uh-huh. but are there particular things that stand out in the early days of being in Malawi, um, the job, the people, the culture that, you know, that, that really stood out for you? Well, yes. 
Um, I remember the thought of heading off to what was described as the poorest country in the world that's not in conflict. And that was the statistic at the time that was used to describe Malawi. Yeah. And then on the way there, we went via the solar aid headquarters and they kind of casually told us that uh, often they run out of water and there's rolling power cuts and it's terribly poor. And, um, you know, you, you suddenly it became very real when yeah. we were on our way there. And it was exactly that. It was a terribly poor country um, swarming with these well-intended NGOs who were um, in hindsight now doing more harm than good. Um, and um, it's a country with very limited hope and natural resources. Yeah. So um, it was a big shock to... Um, to, to coming from California, but at the same time, there was a, a, a feeling like you could make a significant difference quickly. Yeah. And that's maybe something that's harder to do in the US and large corporations in particular. You're, you're a small cog in a big machine. Yeah. Um, but in Malawi, we were able to influence change uh, in, in a small way, but quickly. But yeah. it was a big, big culture shock. Um, um, but there's, you know, there's ways to, to settle and it's, there's always a kind of a local community. Um, and to me also the big, uh, secret was football. Right. Um, I'm a big football fan and Africa loves football. So if you like football, you can go to any bar and you're immediately surrounded by friends. Yeah. Um, that was my technique, um, to integrate my wife, meanwhile, did, um, Afro dancing and there's okay. lots of dance classes and now <laughs> that's how she met her social network. Okay. But it, it was a big, big culture shock. Yeah. And when you say football, we're talking about the football you play with your feet, not the one here in the US that you hold with your hands. We're talking about, uh, yes, Manchester United and the, the real beautiful game. Yes, okay. exactly. Um, okay. And it's funny, you, you walk down the street in Africa and every other person's wearing a, a, a 19... Um, 95 Manchester United shirt or the you know an Arsenal shirt is another common one because all the the secondhand clothes particularly old sports shirts end up in Africa right um, so where you're surrounded by like a, a retro parade of football kits yeah. soccer kits <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you mentioned something interesting there about um other NGOs causing more harm than good. And you mentioned there's swarming. Mm -hmm. um, what, did, mm -hmm. what did you, yeah. could you go into that a little bit more? Yeah, exactly. So there was a, probably the most famous one was, uh, I think it was the British government um, funded the distribution of malaria nets um, and to the various communities in Malawi. And when they returned a year later, they found that all the malaria nets they'd given to families had been sold by those families to fishermen who stitched them together to make nets, who completely destroyed the fish population in Lake Malawi. Right. Um, so, we, you know, there's one of those, when you give things away um, in, in not a controlled way, um, it can do a lot of harm. A, a, another example would be all these secondhand clothes that people give to Oxfam, the Salvation Army, um, etc. They get packaged and sold in pellets of clothes in Africa. Right. Um, and then get 
distributed and sold by people on the street. You know, you walk down the street, people selling secondhand clothes. Yeah. And initially you think that's great, except it's completely decimated the garment industry in Africa. It's destroyed it. There used to be lots of clothes manufactured in Africa, but they can't compete with free clothes from the US. Okay. Um, people feel good about giving clothes away, but they're actually in effect destroying an industry in Africa. Right. Uh, and in the solar sector, we had a, an NGO that bought 10,000 lights from us yeah. before I got there, actually, um, uh, which was too tempting not to sell that, that particular NGO, those lights, yeah. who promptly then gave them away to one of our regions, all the villagers in one particular region, which destroyed our sales agent's business overnight. Right. He, um, <laughs> so <laughs> the whole concept of gifting, which is often part of NGOs, is often designed, I think, to make people feel good. Yeah. But it doesn't generate economic activity. And back to my passionate belief that if you can generate economic activity, you help people more than handouts. Yeah. And um, uh, we saw that a lot in Malawi. Yeah. That's 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 um never even would have thought of that. Like you say, to give your clothes away, you feel like you're doing a good thing. Um, mm -hmm. The the idea of the, the the malaria net seem seems like a good thing, um, and yet uh, and yet basic economics come into play. I suppose um, you because you you mentioned in your um, LinkedIn summary about the fourth sector, um, mm -hmm. and I think this is a good segue into that because. The fourth sector essentially is, is a sector of economy which consists, I was reading this earlier, consists of four benefit organizations that combine market-based approaches of the private sector with the social and environmental aims of the public and non-profit sectors. I suppose really then, if, we're to make a, if you were to make a difference where you are, it would be to help people um, economically build businesses, employ people, uh, and enjoy the basic economic benefits that we would do here in the US or UK. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. I, I often describe this fourth sector as like herding cats. It's trying to organize the government, NGOs, um, and the private sector to come together and address all their interests. And, and that actually is why I've ended up at my um, current NGO, ICCO, because that's exactly what they do. Yeah. And it's a very specific example would be we help farmers generate more value from their crops. It's very typical for a farmer in Africa to grow enough um, uh, food just for their own consumption yeah. and not to sell because they don't have access to a market. So uh, part of what we do is help farmers grow better quality crops um, and connect them to the what they call off-takers, the the, the people who turn refine those crops into um, products to be sold worldwide. Um, you know, we've had projects in Kenya where we've helped uh, farmers freeze dry mangoes that were sold around the world. Right. Uh, or probably my uh, favorite project um, is we've helped Heineken um, source barley from farmers in South Africa so they can brew beer made with local products rather than importing it from Europe. Okay. So um, uh, a subject dear for my heart. Yeah. Um, uh, so that's the kind of uh, the, the way I believe you help uh, developing nations is really uh, building sustainable 
value chains yeah. and there's many aspects to that that's access to finance it's it's training it's uh, for farmers it's access to seeds and fertilizers um, and also connecting the markets together right um, and that generates jobs and it generates wealth and we we've got proven examples of doing that yeah um, rather than just giving free tools or, or, or subsidies away that doesn't do any good it's, it's more about generating that um, what, what we call a value chain yeah so um, you, you mentioned the ICCO could you, could you just explain who who they are who is the organization yeah, yeah so the, we're headquarters in the Netherlands um, like many um, of the European nations their original network in Africa was through churches Right. So there will be uh, a network of, um, in our case, Protestant churches throughout Africa. And that's how um, the Netherlands, in, in my example, used to implement their um, aid programs. Um, they used to use their connections through the Protestant church, through East Africa. Um, and that was the kind of the implementation network is through the churches. Well, you know, ICCO is 55 um, years old and it's developed into a kind of a, a multi-faith or, um, organization rather than a Protestant church-based um, yeah. organization. But still, it's grounded on a, a church network. Okay. Um, and um, it's actually, it is the common theme with many um, NGOs um in africa that's how they were established yeah but we were spun off from the dutch government and we're now the uh, independent ngo implementing um, multiple projects funded by the eu um the dutch government um even the mastercard foundation in in the us um implement these kind of um agribusiness um projects um all around the world, my, my region is just East, Central, and South Africa, but we have a presence globally. Yeah. And um, so from Sunny Money to the ICCO, what, where, what happened there? Did you have to leave Malawi? Did you have to finish up with Sunny Money? Was What, what made well, you uh, change? Yeah, well, that's a good question. I mean, I, I fell in love with Malawi. I really wanted to stay. I think my wife was keen to, to move elsewhere but yeah. we both realized that we did what we set out to um when you come to a developing country i think you have to go with the intention of leaving you can't you've got to look to mentor and guide the local team to take over your position right that's you know that should be the objective and in malawi we, we were very close friends with uh, my sales manager and operations manager and after a year, it was clear that they could take the organization forward. I think my role was done. Yeah. And if I stayed there any longer, it would have been for selfish reasons. So it was a really difficult decision. And probably the one that I'm most proud of, that we left the organization in the hands of um, Brave Mahoney, who's the general manager of, of Sunny Money in Malawi. And it's gone on um, to do some fantastic things in Malawi. Yeah. Um, and we, we stay in contact and it was what I think you should do as an expat, an expatriate um, in a developing country is mentor, coach and move on. Right. Um, yeah. uh, and 
then actually returned to the UK for a few months to look after my mother, who wasn't very well at the time. Okay. Um, but we'd already been to Uganda on a, a vacation and fell in love with the country. And then I found ICCO and I saw their focus on business um, creation and um, you know, generating something sustainable livelihoods um, in the agribusiness sector. And that kind of spoke to my capitalist kind of core. Yeah. And um, I kind of had a great call with the regional manager. And uh, yeah, it, that was felt the right fit. Uganda is a beautiful country. Uh, I kind of believe passionately in what ICCO does. And uh, it's really quite a very different country as well to Malawi. Yeah. So for those um, listening who, who might not be aware, so Uganda had a, uh, a pretty brutal war um, just over a decade now I guess it would it was it kind of closed would that be fair to well, say? well yeah I mean there's, there's always kind of a little bit of you know unrest in various parts but it's been quite some time now <clears throat> I think most people know Uganda from the days of Idi Amin who was ousted a long time ago now I think in the in the late um, 80s I think yeah. my history's not very good but it's been um, uh, uh, present in place for like 33 years now, um, which kind of is less of a democracy, more of a um, dictatorship. Um, that's not unusual in East Africa. Yeah. Um, so there was um, a civil war uh, in South Sudan, actually. That's probably the, the most recent unrest. And there's been a lot of refugees who've fled South Sudan into Uganda. Uganda's got a one of the most um, open policies to refugees. It allows anyone into Uganda if they're suffering from um, war. Right. And um, there's big refugee settlements in northern Uganda that we help provide skill training. So we help people develop businesses um, who are basically re have been resettled from South Sudan to Uganda. Yeah. Um, so Uganda itself actually has been peaceful for quite a long time, but it's had neighbors who've had issues. Yeah. Um, and um, but the big challenge in East Africa, and in fact, in many countries around the world, is there's an enormously large population of young people, often now with skills, technology skills, who don't have jobs. Right. And that's, you know, that's a problem. It's yeah. going to become a big problem. So, um, it, when you when you talk about skills, what what typical skills um, are these generations uh, coming up with? Is it is it technology? Because what I'm I'm getting at, if it if like you know the rest of the world, it's technology. We start to think about like infrastructure, particularly around the internet and that kind of thing. Um, so is is it is it just jobs, or is it also things like infrastructure that are holding people back? Well, uh, yeah, infrastructure. I think the governments in some of these countries could be better. Um, corruption is an issue in varying degrees of each of uh, the countries in Africa. Um, I'm certain outside Africa as well. Yeah. Um, there is a, I think the current generation are tech savvy. You know, um, most uh, of the youth, particularly in the uh, urban areas, have smartphones and they're all using Facebook and all the tools you have on your phone. Yeah. Um, I think there's a, 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 and that's, 
actually influences many other aspects of, of, of kind of, of East Africa, where I'm most familiar, life, in that technology is, is involved with renewable energy. So um, there's a lot of solar um, projects going on. Um, obviously, I was involved in that with, in Malawi, yep. but you know, people are now able to pay via their phones. You know, mobile money has been a big enabler in, um, in Africa. Right. Um, so people can pay for um, products, whether it's solar products or um, uh, agricultural products, by um, paying over over the phone. Okay. So it's if the, the the digital revolution is impacting. Um, every aspect of of, of um, Africa yeah uh, and it's really uh, it, it's becoming a, 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 a really a part of everyone's life um, you know everyone has a mobile money account everyone has a smartphone um, everyone uses whatsapp you know it's yeah. uh, <coughs> you know and it's crossovers as well you know there's um, with agriculture, you the now irrigation pumps are solar power. Okay. Areas which didn't, didn't have water yeah. now have water because they're, they're able to have water pumped into that region using solar powered um, irrigation pumps. Right. Um, um, and then you know, now solar is becoming the cheapest form of um, power. There's lots of mini grids being built that are um, providing power to regions which are off the grid. In fact, the grid itself is becoming, um, uh, you know, an old-fashioned way of getting electricity. Yeah, you know, it's so expensive to put um, pylons in the ground and cables for miles and miles across Africa. Yeah. Um, so, you know, for for farmers, yes, it definitely is infrastructure. Um, it's often training and knowing. Um, you know, certain heavily starch-rich pro- uh, um, produce which are grown, um, you know, rice and potatoes and cassava and ma- particularly maize is very popular. Right. But it's not very nutritious. So, you know, there's a, a, a lot of uh, focus on growing more nutritious crops in Africa, yep. um, cabbage and onions and tomatoes. Um which is, um, you know, there, there isn't the knowledge on how to grow those in industrial quantities. Right. So, okay. you know, it's those, it's that development. It's not just about digital, it's about knowledge. But a lot of that knowledge can be shared now by various digital means. There's apps being created which provide that kind of knowledge to farmers. Okay. Um, we've, we've, in fact, Eco itself have developed an app that enables um small banks uh, in Africa, they're called microfinance institutions, MFIs. That allows loan officers to assess farmers for loans so they can invest in their farm to grow more crops. And it's just back to my kind of capitalist ideals. The focus isn't on the farmer. The focus is on the loan officer. You can make it really easy for a loan officer to decide whether a farmer is a good candidate for a loan. He's going to make that loan decision rather than lending it to a businessman in town. Right. Um, so if you can make it easy for a loan, these MFIs to make loans, they'll make more loans and farmers will able to invest in their farms 
supported by organizations like eco produce more crops um that whole um aspect is 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 a, a term called access to finance so it's connecting these small finance institutions to the farmers and making it easy for these finance institutions to assess the risk yeah. of will that farmer be able to repay the loan yeah um so it's money it's technology it's training it's actually connecting the large international or even domestic um, distribution organizations to, um, and often it means banding farmers together right um, so maybe they can share uh, transportation for getting their crops to a central warehouse and then okay. once they get to the central warehouse maybe we can then provide them credits for delivering their crops yeah. um, rather than having to find a buyer there and then so right. it's, it's it's the whole building a, a market particularly based on agriculture because yeah. i think about 85 percent of the population in africa is employed or involved in um agriculture to a certain degree and so yeah. it's a, a agricultural based continent yeah yeah and i suppose the other thing because i suppose really what you're getting at is that um you know farmers and communities are becoming a even more i don't say insulated but without having to rely like you say on having pylons put in the ground and and everything mm. else that through solar through the internet you can stay localized um particularly in areas that are harder to get at geographically right you know my farm's in the middle of nowhere yeah, yeah exactly yeah i mean africa's big and the roads aren't great right and um so it is a challenge um but it's, there's a lot of potential. I, there was a really interesting statistic I read the other day that there's 45 million people who live in Uganda. Uganda is a country with enormous um, amount of natural resources. What I mean by that is fertile soil, lots of rain, lots of sunshine. Um, and, and if just Uganda adopted organic Western farming techniques, it could grow enough food for 350 million people. Right. Um, but they're actually still importing a lot of their food because their farmers um, aren't efficient yet. Right. Um, and Africa as a whole is an importer of food. Yeah. Um, even though, so if you could just change that equation, yeah, then it will yeah. make an enormous difference to the country. Yeah. Um, and yeah, um, there are challenges. Some, as I said, it's, it is infrastructure, it is government, but um, it's you know, there is a lot of potential um, with now driven by a, a large population of educated youth um, you know, who, who actually want to, um, they want to work, they want to have an opportunity. So a lot of kind of, uh, you know, small businesses popping up now that are targeted towards helping um uh, farmers and agriculture um and it's the entrepreneurial spirit is uh, alive and strong in africa <coughs> um in fact it, on, it was that one the one thing that really did surprise me when i first arrived in africa is that everyone has four jobs you know they, okay. they don't just have their day job they yeah. also are a chicken farmer or have a um, a small plot of land they grow their own crops yeah um 
So sometimes that leads to maybe a lack of focus, but there is a, a, a kind of an inherent entrepreneurial spirit yeah. that um, we try to tap into. Yeah. It's interesting because I, um, I think you answered my question, which was, um, you know, in terms of um, efficiency of agriculture and so on, about how far um, these countries are away from a good export market. But it, it kind of sounds like a long way, right, if the majority of food is still being imported despite all these, as you say, natural resources. Um, from your perspective, how... How far out do you think um, places like Uganda are from becoming a little bit more self-sustaining and less reliant on imports? Oh, what a good question. Um, is, it well, in, is it in our lifetime? It, it, well, you know something, it varies. Yeah, I, I think so. And it varies by country. I think uh, I always catch myself not wanting to, to, just, to talk about Africa as a whole because... Yeah. Each country is in different stages of progress. Um, Rwanda now, for example, the country that suffered a terrible genocide in 1994, is an incredibly stable and successful country. It reminds me of Switzerland. Right. You go to, uh, it's amazing. Yeah. It, it's the cleanest streets, the, the best infrastructure, a lot of foreign investment. And that's because, largely because their president has really ruled the country with an iron fist, but fairly. Yeah. Um, and has attracted foreign investment. So I think Rwanda is a few years away from really having a self-sustaining economy. Yeah. Um, it, you can see it. It's not far. Uh, meanwhile, the other end of the spectrum, we have Zimbabwe, which is going through a horrible time right now. Um, and, you know, I, I can't quite see how that comes to an end. Right. Um, and it also depends on the, the kind of the tastes of the of the West. You know, there's, there's always a, a different agenda with each new. Um, every it feels like every decade, there's uh, there's different agendas. Currently, the, the the donor focus, you know, of, of the European Union in particular, is to generate jobs in North Africa. Right. Because if you generate jobs in North Africa, you get less immigration into Europe. Right, and um, that's that's so a lot of dollars being spent in areas where eco is focused, yeah. which is um, you know job curation, um, and I, I agree with that. You know, if you can help people stay at home and um, feed their families and um, become successful and live a uh, a, a, a good life, that, and if that prevents them from having to move north and all the challenges that creates, um, that's that's a worthwhile goal. Yeah. But that's currently the, you know, that agenda has been driven by the, the the development money from the European Union and the European government. Okay. Okay. Um, when when you join the ICC, uh, what do you call it? ICO or IC? I'll call it the ICCO. Um, you yeah. move you move from volunteer. Now you're actually in employment, right? Now you're actually yeah. an employee. And um, and you'd mentioned before about you know moving to developing countries about having uh, this idea that you have an exit. Um, is that mm-hmm. the same for where you are now, or given the size of the challenge, um, is this is this sort of where you'll stay? Do you, do you think there's a time where you'll be able to leave? Yeah, I, I, I do, and I, and I think I'm always planning for that. Right. Um, 
what's what's particularly challenging with um, ICCO is um, it's going through a transition of having um, a, a kind of large sums of um, funding being distributed by the Dutch government to a very very competitive model. Right. Where we have to compete with global NGOs. Um, so there's a big transition we're trying to manage. Um, so I think there's quite a lot of work to do before the organisation is is now uh, is, a, is a lean and competitive non-Dutch government dependent NGO. Right. But my goal is to develop the team under me for me to move on. Yeah. So I guess the unspoken question is how long is that? Um, I think it's a year or two years, I think. Yeah. And then by then, I'd like to think the team that I put in place will take on um, uh, kind of the work that we, we've done. You know, there's a lot yeah. of system work we're putting in place. There wasn't the right systems. Um, uh, there was a need to decentralize the management of the organization from the Netherlands into the region. So there's a lot of work to do. Yeah. Absolutely. The, the goal is to um, ultimately develop a, the, the local organization to, um, to absorb my role. Yeah. It's, it, you have an interesting story because um, when I think back to other people that I've spoken to who've, who've done work in Africa, not along the same lines as you, they speak of... And, and this is going back some time. They spoke of their uh, frustration at, at the lack of progress from all sides, government or corruption, as you say, um, the size of the problem. But it's, it's, it's kind of sounds to me that actually, and maybe it's a sign of the times that you're, you're, you've actually experienced uh, being there and being able to make a difference and seeing that difference um, uh, grow exponentially. Would you, would you kind of agree with that? Yes, uh, I, I think the development sector uh, is evolving. Um, I do think there's more focus on job creation, um, obviously responding to crisis, you know, floods and wars and yeah. um, droughts, that type of thing. That's a humanitarian um, responsibility. But in terms of the, the, the development focus on job creation, I think is, is right now. Um, I think you talked about this fourth sector. Uh, I do think you've got to find that balance between the private sector, government, and the NGOs. They have to work together. Yeah. Um, and when they walk away from a project, that project has to live on. And yeah. That's what we often find with development projects. Once the project stops, the objectives of the project just kind of fizzle out because right. it's not built for sustainability, you know, which is a phrase that's overused, unfortunately. Yeah. But you, projects have to live on once the NGO has finished its work. Um, and I think that's getting much better. Um, but the, I think the missing piece is still the, the governments in, um, in Africa. Right. So, so you... um, they need to do more. You're right. And, and you touched on something there, which is, you know, as you say, the word sustainability. Um, mm -hmm. And you mentioned it's getting better, but so what you found then is that the, the NGOs come in on, on these projects and leave, and a, a lot of times the project dies or, or fizzles out. Um, mm -hmm. is, that a, is that like a, um, a common 
majority thing because as you said when you were in Malawi there were, you know there was a swarming with NGOs Do, so is that typically the case that these um these you know there's a lot of projects going on but you know they, they have a life cycle they they start they have a middle they have an end and, and that's it is the you know projects that are truly sustainable are they still a minority or is or is that getting better well, I, I think it's getting better. I, I think it's probably difficult to tell. Uh, as I said, you split projects into humanitarian projects, but there's a, a, a need you have to address. Yeah. Development projects, um, I, I think now I would say the majority, the focus is on having um, very clear metrics to measure whether the project is making an impact. You know, have you truly improved the wealth of the beneficiaries on the project? Yeah. Um, and, and maybe a, a good example is one of the things we found in uh, when I first went to Malawi. There was a project where we were being asked by an NGO to train um, people from the rural community to be solar cells agents. And um, so we, uh, you know, I looked into the project and I was told that uh, the previous year there was a thousand people were trained. Right. And um, I asked a very simple question of those 1,000 people, how many became successful solar agents? You know, they, yeah. they were invited to a two-day um, training course. They were given a free sample solar light. You paid their transportation, their meals. Okay, so how many of those 1,000 people we trained became successful um, resellers of, sol of solar lights? Um, and I, I remember the look I got when I asked that question was of why would you care? Yeah. We trained a thousand people. That was what the metric was on the project. Right. We trained a thousand people. Yeah. Well, I done my I did my homework. We actually out of those a thousand people, only three of them went on to become successful solar agents. Okay. So yeah. the metric was wrong. The, yeah. the way of measuring success was wrong. So the next program we had twenty people we trained, not a thousand, and eighteen of them um became successful solar agents who then built a solar business who then employed staff and then sold far more lights to children who are in villages without electricity who yeah. are now able to read at night. So yeah. the actual outcome um, was better, but the, the, the initial project was the, it was the wrong measure. Yeah. Um, and I think that is a, a very simple example of, of the change going on in the development sector is how do you truly measure um, the impact of the project? Um, and uh, I think that's an area which has become like a profession on its own in yeah. the development sector, right. monitoring and evaluation. Yeah. Um, you've got to pick the right criteria. Right. And um, in terms of, I, I suppose, uh, for those providing funding as well, um, that that's become key, right? Which is, you know, where's our money being spent and what's the, not the return, but what is the result, right? As you say, you train yeah, a thousand exactly. people and three yeah. salespeople. Yeah, and, the, and there's various uh, regulations being passed. I know in the Netherlands, but I think in Europe as a whole, that development organizations have to provide complete transparency on these metrics. So, you know, on these, in, in how many farmers have, grow, have grown their annual income based upon the work we've done. That would right. be a good metric, for example. Okay. You know, if we've done all this training, we've connected them with the, the market, we've provided them access to finance, 
can we demonstrate that we're increasing their annual income? Those, those metrics, um, are, we are now required to provide them on our website. So our, the, the taxpayers in the countries that we operating can see um, results of our projects. Yeah. So it's like a lot of these things, it's transparency um, is improving, the metrics are improving, and as a result, the projects are, are better, more focused, yeah. rather than broad strokes, more surgical, and involving the private sector. Yeah, yeah. And um, and and in your role in finance, um, mm-hmm. having this link with the Netherlands, it, the, mm-hmm. the skills that you've, you know, the, the the well, yeah, the skills that you've had, the UK, the US, is that just something you've carried on? into Africa? Have there been particular challenges related to to your skill set that you've had to kind of develop while you're there? Uh, yeah, yes. And there's also been a, a strange um, reuse of skills that I had in, that I developed in, in, in my time in the US that I wasn't expecting. So the, the first thing is these projects require a level of grant um, accounting and it's quite technical and it's very um, precise right. and uh, very regulation driven. It's like a whole new tax code. Right. So you have to learn that pretty quick if you're in finance and the development sector. But um, as part of my role at uh, ICCO, um, we're building this uh, app for MFIs, these microfinance organizations. Um, to help their loan officers, um, you know, assess farmers for credit risk. Yeah. Um, and that's required us to develop a, a cloud app, um, which is going to be used on tablets by farmers going into the field, often without telecommunication or uh, network access. Yeah. Um, and we've had to build a, you know, a licensing model and a business model that lives on beyond the project. You yeah. Know, okay. Um, so that was my background. I'm building a, a software sales model yeah. for selling this application to you know, these hundreds of thousands of small little banks in Africa who service the farmers. Right? Yeah. It's got to be good enough for them to be willing to pay for it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you know, suddenly I'm selling software in Africa, uh, <laughs> or not quite selling it, yeah. but part of building a software industry in Africa. And yeah. of course, that is very consistent with my background yeah um i kind of want to round off with um just some questions first of all around for anybody listening who has a desire whether it's you know whatever the calling is to go to africa and to help um Mm -hmm. what would be your advice what would be and 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 in the context of career and personal development as well as being able to help uh, these countries. What what's your advice? What what would you tell someone who's thinking about doing what you've done and doesn't know where to start? Well, okay, uh, that's a, uh, another good question. So we started off as a volunteer um, in Malawi, and that role actually ended up becoming a employee in Malawi. So my second employee role was in Uganda with ICCO. But you start off as a volunteer, right? Um, and then that gets you on the ground, connected. Um, so I think be willing to be a volunteer first is, is, uh, rule number one. Yeah. Um, second thing is depends what your background is with my accounting background. I, uh, what I didn't mention was that 
um, when I started to look for something to do after um, the US, I looked at my accounting association's website and they were had an agency uh, uh, associated with the website called AFID, Accounting for International Development, AFID. Right. That's basically a, a non-profit recruitment agency that looks for accountants, in my case, uh, chartered management accountants, um, and places you in assignments overseas, both volunteer and permanent positions. Yeah. And they placed me in Malawi and they placed me in this position in Uganda. And that's what they do. Yeah. You know, that's their, um, for accountants like me who decided they want to go and leave the private sector, they find you positions in um, the developing nations, um, in the development sector. Yeah. Um, now, that's not if you're an accountant, if you're a, um, uh, an economist or a, um, if you're into agriculture and engineer, uh, my suggestion there is to probably look at the, the EU volunteer program. If you're in Europe, um, I'm certain that the equivalent programs, you just type um, volunteer programs in Google. Um, there's all sorts of different programs uh, sponsored by various um, governments in yeah. the US and, and, and in Europe. Um, but for, as an accountant, it's particularly, as anyone with a finance background, it's, it's very easy to um, use via an agency like AFID. Okay. Is there, um, from your experience and where you are now, is there any particular uh, uh, job roles that you, you know, that you would, that are in demand that you would, you could fill pretty, pretty quickly with the right people? Uh yeah, it's. Uh, I think there's a program management is a big deal right. in all the development sector. Yeah. So anybody with uh, project management experience is a sought after skill. So yeah. um, you know all these projects I talk about are um, very much about delivering projects. So if somebody is a project manager in the US, those same skills can be applied as a volunteer first, typically, but then that can be then migrated into a permanent position. So yeah. finance and project managers are the two skills um, I think are um, uh, most sought after in in developing nations. Yeah, um, delivering projects on time, on budget. Right. Just so that's what yeah. tends to be a struggle. Yeah. Okay. And so um, for you, then what uh, what do you think is next? Are you are you are you and your wife just kind of uh, you know, you you've, you'll move on when the time is right and take whatever opportunity comes up, or is there a plan? You know, where do you kind of see things going? Yeah, uh, there is a plan. I think I want to see this transition of the ICCO organization into a lean and very uh, innovative um, NGO you know, focused on um developing the agriculture sector in Africa. I think there's yeah. a lot of work to do. I want to see that through until uh, I can see the finish line. I don't necessarily want to take it over the finishing line. I want to see the finishing line. Yeah. But I, I think what I've, I've learned about myself is I'm not a salesperson. Um, I, I actually enjoy coaching, mentoring. Um, uh, and that's really what I've been doing here in Africa. You're looking at bringing some experiences and skills um, from the private sector, which I think is important, to Africa yeah. and helping 
uh, develop business. So I think maybe next is um, some form of business um, studies, teaching, mentoring, coaching, somewhere in the world. Okay. Um, not sure what or when, Yeah. but uh, I, I think that is my next calling, but there's still here first. Yeah. And um, do you do you see that do you see yourself coming back to the US or UK permanently as part of that, or, or is there a desire always to be in emerging, you know, emerging markets and economies? Yeah, I, I, I think I can't see myself back in the US or the UK now. This whole experience has been so life changing. I yeah. go back to the US, and I, I, I see a number of things I, I I don't think I could reconcile with again. I, the, limited amount of uh, personal time people have leave time the hours that people work yeah i'm not saying i work any less but i um i feel i have more balanced life right. um, um and i think um in, I, I, one thing i felt now in hindsight in the us you tend to work 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 to have money to spend 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 yeah um and i've kind of kind of moved away from consumerism a little bit so I, I i feel that the us is a great place to build a career but i think maybe i'm looking for a kind of a simpler life now than yeah the, the kind of the hard charging us corporate lifestyle so i don't know my wife's colombian so uh, <laughs> the chances are it might be it might be colombia okay excellent well, Phil, Phil, thank you very much for um, taking the time to talk to me. I know it's probably late there in Beirut now, um, but you have a great story, and I hope it serves as inspiration for anybody who, who gets to listen to this. So I want to uh, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. Uh, and uh, I suppose all that's left to say is Happy New Year. Exactly, and um, one thing I've also learned is Beirut is the place to be for New Year's Eve. What a what a town! Really it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, I, a number of people said, "Are you sure?" <laughs> but it is an absolutely amazing place. So my last uh, advert is: if you ever uh, want to take a, a exciting trip, um, Beirut's the place to come. It's amazing. It really is. So uh, I'll be celebrating here and uh, Happy New Year to you too. Yeah, thank you very much.